From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Undercurrent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Undercurrent, Season 12, Episode 4. We're calling this one Homecoming, because it's the end of Homecoming Week here on Michigan State's campus. And in the spirit of Homecoming, we're dedicating this episode to all of our alumni. In the past week, we've had the opportunity to call up a couple former news team members. But of course, as we like to say, once a newsy, always a newsy. Today, we've got throwback features produced by alumni Daniel Rezal, Nina Rao, and Audrey Matus. I got to catch up with Daniel. He was the news director when I started volunteering as a freshman. And during his time at Michigan State and at the Impact, he was the assistant news director and then moved up to the director role. And he was also the host of Impact's Americana specialty show, The Progressive Torch and Twang. These days, Daniel is working in Colorado at KSJD, an NPR member station as a journalist and a one-man news team. Here's my conversation with Daniel. Hello? Hi, Sophie. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Um, I'm good. Are you ready to start the interview? Yeah. Cool. What was your favorite part of working here, or do you have a favorite story from your time uh, at the station? I remember that my first year there, somebody said at the time that really stuck with me, that the great thing about Impact is that it's a great place to make mistakes. And I think that's true, um, especially because it was always great to take the news department so seriously and do a lot of really great stories and, uh, you know, bring on all these volunteers. And that was such a rewarding experience for me. At the same time, the ability to make those mistakes and not feel, um, I don't know, any severe repercussions for it. I mean, that's just a really great incubator to work out of, impact is. Um, I think that's, that's something that really made it one of my favorite parts about being there. So the way I'm sort of setting up the show for this week is sort of playing these interviews with alumni and then playing one of your old stories. And I was planning on playing a story that you did about a photographer. Do you know what one I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, the tin type photographer. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you, so you remember making that story? Yes. Uh, vividly. Yeah. I was wondering Um, what you remembered about making that one. So I went to, uh, do that story. And I remember a couple of my friends wanted to get their portraits done. So this worked out perfectly because then I was able to do some recording while they're getting their portraits done. Let me think of how to phrase it. So we drove down to Kalamazoo where the guy was located and pulled up to his house. And it's like this older house somewhere in Kalamazoo and, you know, going up the creaky steps or whatever. And, you know, the whole thing looked like, it didn't look like it was going to be a legitimate photography studio. So I remember we were <laughs> having these moments of doubt of, you know, uh, you know, where, you know, where the heck are we? But we, we went into the studio and it was just amazing. He had this camera that I'm pretty sure he said it was somewhere around 150 years old. And, you know, the, the whole studio set up and these massive lights and all the chemicals laid out for uh, for processing the tintype. And I remember the smell being very distinct, very vinegary. And the dude was incredibly friendly. And he was uh, he did something that I think a lot of radio reporters love, which is 
uh, tolerate us sticking our microphones uh, up to every single sound they're making. And that was such a great story to do because you have the sounds of the camera clicking and, uh, you know, him talking to uh, the subjects about how to frame themselves and the sounds of the tintypes plopping into all these liquids and mixtures. I just remember really liking that story because of how much um, Nat sound made it into the final feature. And now here's that story by Daniel Rizal. And then just turn your head a little. Yep, you got it. And then Eric Douglas is a photographer in Kalamazoo. That loud fan in the background is keeping one of his lights cool during a photo shoot. Right there. But his face isn't behind a DSLR camera. He's preparing to load in his next tintype into a 100-year-old camera. With a 100-year-old lens and 160-year-old technology is just as sharp, if not sharper, than my brand new $3,000 full-frame Canon digital, you know. Tintypes were popular in the mid-1800s, being one of the few options people had to get portraits done. Having faded out by the turn of the 20th century, people like Eric are bringing it back in the 21st century. Eric started photography in high school, but didn't have the resources at the time to keep going. Later on, Eric and his girlfriend, Anastasia, started selling vintage items online. Anastasia would model, and Eric would work on his photography. He said it took two years before he felt comfortable calling himself a photographer. Eventually, tintypes would work their way into his life. Man, all the things that have been the best thing in my life, I don't know how they started. They just happened. I, I feel like I need to make things or create things. So that's why the, the portrait and the photography is is awesome. But I, I want to better everything. Like even if I shot something that I think was my favorite plate, I want the next one to be better. The process of creating tintypes can be tedious and even dangerous, dealing with explosive chemicals like ether. Anything that you can get easily lacks significant merit, you know, especially since there's, you know, time and materials involved into it. You don't just whip these out. Tintypes use a wet plate collodion process. That's a gelatin-like base that's thinned with ether and 95% grain alcohol the latter of which Eric has to buy in Indiana, where it's legal. Then, different salts are used to salt the collodion, and the result is the film-based mixture. Over time, um, the iodides that are attached to the salts in there uh, start to settle out, and that's when it starts to age, and it'll gain its contrast, and it'll, it'll mature, you know, just like beer and wine and cheese. It, it, it matures to an age of, of ripeness, and so at a specific period in time, you've got that perfect mix of, um, of contrast and speed. After a silver bath in the dark room, a timer goes off. So then you basically turned that thin gelatin layer into a light-sensitive film. The plate is loaded into the camera. Light goes into the lens, reacting and exposing the projected image onto the plate. Back in the dark room, the silver is oxidized and the reaction is stopped with water. Leftover film is then washed in a darkroom fixer. Perfect. This is going to look nice. If I got the light right, I don't know what, like... All of this is done to preserve a moment captured in one two-hundredth of a second, but expected to last over 200 years with proper care. So that's the cool thing is we just made a photograph that is going to be part of your ancestry. 
It seems to be a lot of work in an age of Snapchats and digital cameras on every cell phone. But the nuances, as Eric describes them, like using different developers and sensitizing plates for different lengths, are all part of creating. But yeah, some of my, my best and favorite plates are the ones that kind of happen on accident, so to speak, or the ones that had um, unintentional consequences. But it, with all things, it's good to change your process up too, you know, because you gotta, you don't wanna live in your comfort zone. And those accidents are new, refreshing even, to people. And to Eric, that's where the art is. Most of the artwork and things of any nature that, that people really like and, and dig is that new voice, that new perspective. So you're not blowing anybody away if you're doing something that's just like somebody else. If you like, if you're making art or whatever it is and you're like, this is weird, is anyone else gonna get it? You know, like I'm not trying to be weird, but like, yeah. I mean, that's the refreshing thing about, you know, everyone's looking for a new perspective on something, so. He pokes his head into the dark room where his work continues to develop. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Daniel Rizal. Next up, Nick Saba called up Nina Rao. Nina was another assistant news director and director of the news team. In her time at the Impact, she also created her own show called Loose Ends, a panel-style production examining the many facets of American life from the perspective of international students. So, Nina, first things first, do you want to introduce yourself by kind of saying your name and how you were involved at the Impact, and maybe which years you were here? Yeah, my name is Nina Rao. I was involved at the Impact throughout my whole college career, um, from freshman year until senior year. I was a news volunteer, and then I became assistant news director, and then I became news director. Um, and I graduated in 2018, which was when I pretty much left the Impact. <laughs> Um, do you like what was your favorite part of working here? I think when I became assistant news director and I started getting along with my coworkers, which was Cole and Daniel at the time. And I I used to I used to feel like I was <laughs> I was an outsider because I didn't listen to like hipster music <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't like do like the things that they did. Impact definitely has an identity of being hipster and being really white and being like a typical type of underground type of group or community. And I didn't fit because I was, I think I was the only international student there. Then when I became assistant news director, I started to get to know the people better. Um, the news team that year, too, was strong. We had a new group of volunteers, and they were all tight. So it was kind of like we were all super close, and we were like, we became a group of friends. And I think that was my favorite part, like starting to meet people that I like, and I was really like in, into everyone, uh, and everyone became my friends. So. What have you been what have you been up to since you graduated from MSU? I actually was able to get my dream internship. I wanted to work at NPR and upon graduation I got I secured a summer internship at NPR 
I worked at the Story Lab desk, um, or Story Lab division, I should say, where it's kind of like a startup, but for stories within NPR. Um, this this particular weekend, uh, we're we're actually we're hoping to play another one of your stories that you did a while back about a student that steals and then reassembles abandoned bicycles. Oh yeah. Do you remember like anything Robin about Hood. making that story? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember yeah. making that? Um, like Robin Hood. I mean, honestly, we could have gotten a lot of people in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had a, we had a, I think we were really good at getting, we're doing not so legal things and get them on air. I just hope they're safe. And <laughs> they're not caught. <laughs> Without further ado... That story about Bike Robin Hood by Nina Rao. Her name was Pomona. I got her the summer of 2015. She was a mix of blue and silver in color, and it was my first bike that I built myself. I was really proud of it. Of her. I told myself that I was going to keep this bike for a long time, until someone took it. This is no joke. It actually happened. It was 4 a.m. in the morning, and my friend wanted to borrow my bike to get to work. I went outside to pick it up, And behold, it was missing. We searched and searched, but it wasn't there. I only had Pomona for about five months. I was mad. Infuriated, actually. The bike was such an efficient way to go around campus. I didn't have to wait for the bus or have to walk for an extensive period of time. And I never really got over it. Until I met 21. Quick side note, the interviewee wanted to remain anonymous, hence... He chose 21 as his title. 21 takes bikes. Illegally. And having my bike stolen before, I was kind of salty. And I wanted to learn the mindset of a bike thief and how he takes bikes. I guess it all starts with noticing a dilapidated bike. You know, more than one thing wrong. Like, this thing's unrideable. Like, the, the handlebars are twisted. Tubes are popped. Or maybe one tube is popped. Chain is super rusted. Um, bike is unlocked on its side, maybe missing a pedal, any number of those things, probably more than two, you know, and I notice it and I say to myself, Hmm, that's not going anywhere fast. And then he waits for the perfect moment. Let's say I saw it on my way to class. I'll wait a week or two, see if it's moved at all. Um, and if it hasn't moved at all, I will come back at night and walk it back to wherever. I mean, when I was living in the dorms, that was in my dorm um, and or my house or a house nearby. And uh, usually I'll get two or three of these together, maybe four, depending on how terrible the components are. And then I'll put them all together and make a bike. At this point, I'm thinking why? I mean... What inspired him to do this? I needed a bike, actually. Um, And so I went walking, and I found a bike, and then I waited. I only waited a week. I usually wait wait longer, but I really wanted a bike. And I um, went and grabbed it, biked it home. It was in terrible shape, but uh, I was able to to actually pedal it home, just no brakes, and the tubes were popped, but I just biked, like, the rims home. And then I fix it up, and I still ride that bike. It's a really nice bike now. Um, I've actually purchased some things for that bike now, but um, when I first started riding it, I didn't. 
and I just really liked it. And then, his friend, whom we're going to name 24, joined him in this act too. He needed a bike, and 21 offered to help. They do the same thing. Eyes an abandoned bike, wait for a few weeks to see if anyone's taken it, and then takes it when no one's looking. This practice suddenly became a hobby for them. They discovered how much they loved building and fixing bikes. I mean, me and my friend, who I also do this with, we had almost no knowledge of how to work on bikes. We started doing this our sophomore year. Um, We just kind of learned as we go, and, you know, just... We're both technically minded, so we kind of could figure it out or, like, look up a little bit. But we, we like to figure it out, too. And since we're already working on terrible bikes, we didn't mind if we kind of blew it a couple times. And then we realized that we really, really like doing it, especially together. It's kind of part of our friendship. And so we just kept doing it. We were always taught the difference between good and bad, justice and injustice. If somebody commits a crime, that person needs to be punished. Simple, right? Well, there are usually gray areas to crime nowadays. A man stealing a bunch of apples because he just doesn't have the money to cook for his children. Or lying to your parents about a mistake you made since maybe the consequences are violent. But we all learn from our mistakes. And some of those mistakes appear out of desperation. In this case, 21 was desperate for a bike. He needed it. And because of that desperation, he discovered a passion of fixing and building bikes. And then I give it away to someone who doesn't have a bike. Yeah. He actually doesn't keep them. Rather, he actually wants to help people by doing this. I mean, the goal is to spread accessibility to resources. So being able to go farther more consistently than walking or running. And just accessibility to transportation in and of itself. And just, I guess, that. And also enjoying doing it. Like, I don't... I don't I don't go out of my way to do it really anymore, except for every now and then a friend asks me to fix their bike or something like that. So, you know, I just do that for them. But other than that, it's, oh, I'm, you know, hanging out today. I might as well build like three or four bikes, you know, just put on the radio and just build bikes for fun, you know. And because he does it for the enjoyment, he would rather fix bikes for free. I don't like being paid for the other stuff that I do with the campus bikes that are all dilapidated because like... Um, I'm into accessibility, accessibility to all sorts of resources, and that includes transportation. And if you can't afford a bike, you can't like get as far as someone who does. So I want to spread that around, and I'd rather not make money for it because I also I really enjoy working on bikes anyway. But 21 has a policy. He refuses to take registered bikes, especially recent ones. Because that means someone did care about it pretty recently, so... You don't know if someone, like, stole it and then they bailed on the bike. So I don't really like to do that. I would hate to take a bike that is being used or could really theoretically be used. His love for fixing and repairing things was not really a big surprise. Tools, drill gun. Uh, I actually don't use this at all when I fix bikes. Um, I've always been what people describe as a tinkerer. I, uh, I like to build little things, build who's it's, what's it's, you know, like open stuff up, put them back together, you know. I can show you a bunch of random stuff that I've made or built. And just bikes is, bikes are kind of just part of that. I didn't, you know, they're just part of tinkering and wanting a bike. A couple seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a fun noise. I love this feeling. Oh, I made a belt out of one of these seatbelts that I pulled and like... I don't even, like, it doesn't really look that great. It feels pretty good, but, like, just the feeling in the morning going, 
Kick. Oh, so good. And as a bike tinkerer, it made sense that 21 had a special shed to store his bikes. There'll be a, like a couple of these bikes, like, let's see, how many bikes are probably here? Like, you know, like 10-ish. Probably only like three or four bikes are going to come out of this. I pull all the parts off. And helping the community hasn't been that difficult. He just finds people that needs bikes. Almost all of them are college-aged. Um, although pretty soon, now that I'm moving out of town, I'm just going to be donating all the parts I have left that are in good shape. He's been meaning to donate the parts for months now. Because of his busy schedule, he never really got the time to gather all of the parts and donate them in person. And he hopes that his donation will go to someone who can help others in a more meaningful way. His experience has also taught him one important thing about bikes. You take care of it, it takes care of you. It's just like a house or a car, you know? Usually when I hear something really bad goes on with someone's house, car, or bike, it's because something got neglected. After listening to his story, I don't really know what to think. I kind of picture him as the Robin Hood of bikes, where he's giving the bikes to people who don't have them. But at the same time, he did take those bikes illegally. Between you and me, I always tell stories about the good guys, the activists, the heroes. But I guess not all heroes are necessarily perfect, like 21. At the end of the day, we're all just human, you know? Sometimes we gotta do what we gotta do, even if we mean well. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Nina Rao. Finally, we have a story from Audrey Matus. Unfortunately, we weren't able to catch up with Audrey in person, but Audrey was an Impact reporter for a bit before moving up to station manager. But these days, she's working as a reporter at the City Pulse publication in Lansing. She's also the founder and creative director of an artistic network called Sometimes Art House. Here's her story. Last week, my neighborhood had a garage sale. So in the essence of spring cleaning... I spent my week helping my parents carrying boxes of school glue, finger paints, and old Halloween costumes up from the basement into our garage. When the bargain hunters weren't prowling through my old stuff, I looked over my shoulder and I'd see a Darth Vader mask, plastic dishes with little bubbles my mom finally decided to get rid of, mountains of clothing, good-intentioned yards of fabric, and of course, the hardly-touched, as-seen-on-TV devices. To me, it just all begged the question, All right, Mom and Dad, why do we have so much junk? I think we both had maybe some hobbies or likes or things. He's more technical side, so there's a lot of electronic things that we've hung on to and still hang on to. She's referring to all my computers, and it's, it goes along with she talked about her Walkman. I've got some of the first computers ever, <laughs> 2K memory, and I think you know it's not junk anymore. Where it actually is a um, small museum of the changes. Um, that I've seen in my life. But my parents aren't the only people in the neighborhood who hold on to old things. Back in the elementary school, I always passed this white Victorian home on my way to and from school, and I'd always had this admiration for the charming home and its large garden. But with the awe came this mystery about the owner of the home. It wasn't until last week that I finally got my chance to meet the owner, an antique dealer named Michelle Eschelbach. It's just like um, when I'm ironing and I'm ironing a certain pillowcase, I remember what TV show was on when I ironed that one, which sounds really strange, but I bet if you're a drinker and you're in the bar and you you can remember the hottest chick in that bar. Michelle's a feisty, tiny ball of energy. She has two cats. In fact, you probably hear them in the background during our interview at times. And Michelle knows a lot about the antique business and the hundreds, probably thousands of trinkets, keepsakes, and whatchamacallits that fill her home. 
Um, has anyone ever called you a hoarder? Yes, but I know just about every antique dealer that has a house that's similar to this. But, you know, I see it as a blank wall. I just don't see the problem. I, I keep it pretty well organized. I can pretty much within five minutes go to just exactly what I'm looking for. Maybe I can't find it right away, but I also remember what I paid for it. Michelle runs her own antique business called Satin Ribbons, and you may have guessed it. She also collects vintage ribbon. Spending time with Michelle and sitting in her living room, I sort of let my mind wander as I looked upon her ribbons, floral teacups, and ceramic cherubs on her walls, making it difficult at times to focus on my purpose for coming over. Do you think perhaps my generation, millennials, or just maybe culture right now in general, uh, don't pay enough attention to the past and like wanting to learn more about the past? Um, I think it's, it's more of a throwaway society. In order to appreciate antiques, you have to have some knowledge of what you're looking at. For most millennials, we can't connect to items from earlier than 1990. The way we see it, the older something is, the less useful it becomes. And it isn't our fault, considering the current philosophy. If something breaks, we'll get a new one. So unless our parents kept their cassettes or rotary phones, we didn't see them. A lot of you will never use or maybe even see a main typewriter to know how that works. I think pencils are going to be obsolete pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, phones. I mean, you wouldn't know what to do with a ringer phone, let alone a rotary dial phone. Um, it's just kind of the way it is. And so goes the cycle of obsolescence. Luckily for antique dealers like Michelle, who hold on to these items, people of all ages have the opportunity to visit the past. Carol Lamb is also an antique dealer. Treasure hunter, I would suppose you would say. She's owned Lambsgate Antiques in Old Town for 14 years. I, I don't think I'm reselling people's junk. Carol thinks that by exposing kids to antiques, it offers them an educational lesson. And the children, when the children come in, they love the typewriters and the rotary telephones. And they ask me how to use them, and they get such a kick. They think that they're so cool. They want to know how to delete on the typewriter. And when I tell them that we had to use white out or carbon paper. It's, it's actually an education for them. Especially since we have so many historical records, sometimes youth will feel like there isn't much more to learn about history. However, you begin to realize how much is missing from your textbooks once you hold an actual remnant of someone else's past. I have a firm affinity, a, a connection with the Civil War people. I don't know why. Michelle, the antique dealer that lives in the house I was so obsessed with as a kid, would agree that some items can take you back to a moment even one that you didn't personally experience. And I feel a kindred spirit to those people. I don't know, I sold a lot of it. Um, I did an estate sale where I was in a closet and it was what we call old lady schmutz. That's where it smells like old perfume and there's rows upon rows of clothes. Well, I got through the first two rows and then there were 23 boxes. And in those 23 boxes were probably 40 pistols, guns, um, derringers, all um, some Chippendale, some French dueling pistols, some Moroccan. And it was just a, a wonderful experience. I felt like I, w I was there. I was a part of it. I mean, I didn't feel the pain, but I, there was an empathy for it. It makes you want to read the continuing story of um, Scarlett O'Hara, you know, just, just a little bit like that. Carol, the owner of Lambsgate Antiques, has witnessed the actual magics of holding onto old memories that didn't necessarily even belong to her. I have even had people find pictures of their family in here, their great-grandfather, um, because people get rid of these photographs. They don't know who they are if they weren't written on the back. These old photographs from the 1800s, early 1900s, they end up in antique stores. And I've had two cases where people have found their relatives. So that's been fun. It was probably a two-part answer. One of it is partly me. That's my dad explaining like said, to me so why he is so adamant about me saving you know, my childhood toys and artwork. Things. 
Um, and I think I told you the other day, I wish I still had my first teddy bear, you know? And, that, and I think it would just be cool to be able to pull out some of those memories because they're good memories. You know, it's kind of, it's like looking at photographs. Why do people keep photo albums? Because when you go through them, it, something goes through you and brings back good memories. And um, it's like going a trip back in time, taking a trip back in time. I wouldn't compare the nostalgia someone gets from an object to launching off from the DeLorean. However, I think like time travel is a fair description for how I felt when I passed through the entryway of Michelle's home. But the feeling of going back in time didn't come from Michelle's antiques. More so, it was awakening a vintage curiosity. I think it's fair to say that getting rid of old things to make space for the future is necessary. But take it as a lesson from these antique dealers, that what you hold on to can act as a time portal for a future generation. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Audrey Matus. And that's it for our show. Special thanks to Daniel and Nina for taking time to talk to us this week. And of course, thank you to Audrey and all of our undercurrent and Impact alumni. None of us would be where we are without you. We love our Impact family. Thank you to our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, and our programming director, Amber Knuski. And of course, as always, thank you to the listener. You've been listening to The Undercurrent on WDBM East Lansing. We'll see you next week.